Amen. Please turn to the book of Jonah. We are in Jonah chapter 1. We'll gradually make our way through the first chapter, but for just to begin with, we'll start with verses 1 to 3 of the book of Jonah. Jonah is, uh, if, you're in, if you're following me, following with me in your Bible, the words will be up on the screen as well, but if you're following me with me in the Bible, if you turn to the book of Matthew and you go back, you'll come to Habakkuk, which is the last book in the Old Testament. If you go several books back, you'll come to the book of Jonah. It's one of the minor prophets, it's only four chapters long. Even I can't get there. Jonah chapter 1, and then we'll sort of take one chapter at a time, so we'll spend, including today, four weeks into the book of Jonah, and that'll actually take us um, to the Sunday before Christmas, or the, it's the week, it'll be the week, I don't know, whatever, but it'll take us to the 19th, which brings us that much closer to the holiday season, which is kind of wild to even think about, that we're that close. But Jonah chapter 1 Verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee from Tar- to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you may show us yourself in your word. Show us Christ. Help us to receive what you have to teach us this morning and that you may use that your word, the teaching of your word, to shape and form our hearts. And I pray that every word of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. He was a missionary under the Chinese Evangelization Society. Now, Hudson Taylor was actually friends with Charles Spurgeon and... George Mueller, many of you know George Mueller is the one who started many orphanages without asking for money, without taking credit or taking out any loans, and Hudson Taylor came under similar convictions, and his particular missions agency actually took out debt or took out loans for the support of missionaries, and so he came under conviction. He dropped out of that particular missions agency while he was in China for missions, but then he became incredibly sick, so he and his wife had to travel back to England for some needed rest. And during that time, he was agonizing. His faith was decreasing, in part because he so badly wanted to share the gospel internationally. 
And it was one particular Sunday on June 25th, 1865, near a beach, that he went to the Lord, agonized before the Lord, cried out before the Lord, and in that particular moment, in this despair, was born the China Inland Mission. In that moment, if he, he had decided that he would entrust all of his efforts to the Lord to guide his steps and direct his paths, and because there wasn't any other missions agency sending people to China, he decided to establish his own. And by the time of his death in 1905, there were 825 missionaries in China, 300 missions stations, 500 plus Chinese workers, and 25,000 converts. And today, there is somewhere around 150 million believers in China. In part, thanks to the China Inland Mission established by Hudson Taylor, which began in a moment of despair. One decisive moment on a beach, because of an illness that took him away from the mission field and back home, we see then, I think, the testament, a testament to the providence of God. So we turn our attention to the book of Jonah. One central question in this book is, what is God really like? And so let's attempt to answer that question. And so for the next several weeks, sort of splitting the book of Jonah into four different parts, one for each chapter, sort of four episodes. Think of it that way. In this particular episode, today's episode, episode one, consists of three parts. The first part is a comical decision. So, the book of Jonah is helpful to know the context and history. So, Jonah was a prophet who prophesied under the reign of Jeroboam II, who ruled in Israel. Jeroboam was grandson to Jehoahaz, who was for some time the king of Israel. Now, he was a wicked king, and because of his wickedness, God brought judgment upon the nation of Israel through the Arameans who oppressed the nation of Israel. But in his compassion, God delivered his people. Then Jeroboam's father, Jehoash, began to expand Israel by taking or reclaiming back the lost lands that the Arameans took. And then Jeroboam, when he became king, he was also a wicked king, by the way. Yet he expanded the kingdom of Israel and going much farther than those who came before him. And so it was under this particular king that Jonah was prophesying. Now, with regards to the author and genre of the book, the author of the book of Jonah is actually unknown. We have no idea who wrote the book. Most likely it wasn't Jonah, just given the deprecating nature of the character of Jonah. And you know what I'm talking about if you've read it. The book of Jonah is not an allegory. That is, using fictional characters in order to symbolize some other reality. And it's not a parable either, which is a tale narrated to make a single point, but rather it is a prophetic narrative. Or to put it another way, it's a biographical narrative. It's biographical because it tells us about the story of Jonah. It doesn't tell us his entire life, but it tells us of a particular event in his life. And taken this way, what sets this particular book apart from the other prophetic books in the Old Testament is that it focuses much less on the message of the prophet and focuses much more on the character 
of the prophet. I mean, you'll see later when we get to when we get to the end of the book of Jonah, his message to the Ninevites is only about seven or eight words long. There's not much to go on there. So, taken that way, it seems that the book of Jonah intends to teach the reader, not through the message, but through the character of the prophet. And we have to accept it as a historical account. Yes, it sounds fantastical when you read through it, but we have to treat it as something that actually happened. If we want to be true to the divine author's intent, which is God himself, then we have to take it as an actual event that happened. In fact, the New Testament treats it as a historical event. Jesus himself does so when he compares Jonah and how he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus says, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus assumes that the book of Jonah actually happened. Matthew 12, 41, when Jesus is talking to the people of Israel, talking to religious teachers, and he's condemning the current generation for not believing the message of Jesus. Right? Jesus says that the Ninevites, will rise up at the, at the judgment and condemn this current generation because when they heard the preaching of the word, they repented. So we must avoid believing or thinking that didn't actually happen. Right? Many liberal theologians treat it as an allegory, as something that didn't happen. But no, even Jesus treats it as something that was historical. So then, turning our attention to the narrative, it tells us in verse 1, of the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee from, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so we have God calling upon Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim against it. It seems that the, the nation or this great city of Nineveh has committed great atrocities, great evil. And we assume that he's calling Jonah to go and preach perhaps a message of judgment. And what Jonah does is he runs in the opposite direction. Nineveh is in the east. And Jonah heads in the opposite direction. He wants nowhere, nothing to do with Nineveh. He doesn't want, any, want to be anywhere near Nineveh. So he goes in the opposite direction. And notice also just the, his commitment to his particular course of action. It says he rose to flee to Tarshish, the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa, found a ship, he paid the fare, went into it, and then off he went. This is a man who was committed. Went, found, paid, and left. And twice in this particular section, it tells us that he was intending to run away from the presence of God. Which I think is actually quite comical. Because there's no running away from the presence of God. Running away from the presence of God is like trying to run on a treadmill. You're not going anywhere. It's stationary. You're running in place. That's what it's like to run away from the presence of God. But he intends to run away. 
quite comical, quite outlandish, but is it really all that bizarre? I mean, have you ever tried to run away from the Lord? Ever tried to run away from something He's calling you to do? To avoid doing something you know He's calling you to do? Maybe procrastinating, putting something off? Right, what does it feel like if you've ever been there? Maybe you've got a nagging feeling, maybe a guilty conscience. Some try to avoid God because they know they have sinned. Perhaps this morning might be calling you or reminding you to do whatever it is that he's been calling you to do. The Lord has a way of catching up with you and turning you in the direction that you're supposed to walk in. And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he catches up with us and reminds us and calls us to himself and doesn't leave us to run in the opposite direction of where we're supposed to be headed. So there's part one. Part two of this episode. God catches up with Jonah. Which he really doesn't, right? Again, he can't run from the presence of the Lord. But his decision ultimately catches up with him. So verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It tells that God hurls a great wind upon the sea and causes a storm in the middle of the sea so that the ship, that the ship is threatened to be broken up. It can't sustain, it can't endure this incredible storm. And so in, an, so in their efforts, the sailors take the cargo and start throwing it overboard, trying to lighten their ship because they were in fear of their lives, I mean, tossing their means of income, tossing their possessions, tossing the possessions of others to save themselves, as any rational person would do. And they even begin to call out to their gods, hoping that someone up there might hear them. Several weeks ago, I was forced to watch Titanic. I never cared to watch the Titanic, but my wife made me watch it, so I did. There's a lot about it. You ought to skip. Pretty good movie, regardless. But I think we would all agree that the most haunting and the most memorable part of the movie was the very end, right after the Titanic hits the iceberg and people in panic because they know that they might die. 
It doesn't matter what's left in their cabins. It doesn't matter what's left in their large rooms. No matter what prized possessions were there, nothing was more valuable than their lives. And sadly, many people in the world do not realize just the fleeting pleasures of temporary things. Many people in the world do not realize how fleeting the treasures of the world are until they're hit with impending death. As you see people scrambling, as you see husbands and fathers putting their spouse and their children because they're only accepting the women and children first, seeing families separated, people jumping overboard, seeing this, this great ship broken in half and people clinging for their lives. And you see a small group of people with a priest and they're all praying to God, perhaps for a miracle, or perhaps they've accepted their fate and asking that God would usher them and comfort them into an everlasting and peaceful eternity. And here are these mariners, these sailors, in the middle of the sea, their lives threatened, and they're pleading to God, God, somebody up there, save us. Maybe someone up there will be inclined to help us. But in reading the passage, right, we have an insight that they didn't have at that time, right? And even an insight that Jonah is aware of, but chooses to ignore it, and that is that God is the author of this disastrous event. And his being the author of this event, he's also in control of the storm. And because he's in control of the storm, he's the only one who can also remove it. And these sailors will soon realize that their only hope is in the one who has orchestrated this disastrous event. And they soon will also plead to him and pray to him. So they're praying and hoping The secular man today has placed himself, I think, in a great tragedy of his own doing because he forsakes the living God. If you forsake the living God, what hope do you have in this world and in the next? It's an abandoning of all hope. I came across this statement made by Matthew Henry. And at the end, I I didn't know what to do with the end of it. I didn't know if I should chuckle or not, but I'll leave that to you. But he writes, Many will not be brought to prayer till they are frightened to it. He that would learn to pray, let him go to see. So all this is happening. There's turmoil, there's distress. People are throwing their possessions, throwing the cargo. They're pleading, crying out to God. And there is Jonah, the prophet of God, taking a nap. And, I mean, there's different ways of interpreting this. I mean, why in the world is he sleeping? You might think, well, perhaps he trusts in the sovereign God. Maybe he's accepted his fate. And there's nothing to do at that moment but take a nap. But perhaps, perhaps, this man, this prophet, has a lack of conviction. 
maybe his heart has become so hard that even in the midst of Torible, that even in the midst of knowing that he has been disobedient to God, he can take a nap. Undisturbed by the doom without and no sense of guilt within. That it takes a pagan captain to rouse him up and tell him to pray to God. The ship captain says that there may be a chance that the God will give a thought to us, which is kind of, a, I think, an interesting statement. The captain seems to be only hoping that a God will happen to hear from them, that perhaps a God will be so inclined to hear them, might be inclined to respond, might be in a good mood that day to perhaps save these poor sailors. This entire event is surrounded by so much uncertainty. What in the world is happening? Why is this happening? Whose fault is this? Who has committed sin? The only thing that they seem to be certain of is an impending death unless something changes. And in all this, God is intending to capture the prophet's attention. And because you and I have a special insight into what is going on, we know again very clearly that this has been orchestrated by God himself. And in this story, I think some of the, one of the things that we see most clearly is the providence of God. God's providence is God's preserving his creation. It's operating in every event in the world and directing things in the universe to his appointed end for them. Now, under this broad category of the providence of God, we also have then two subcategories, known as the general providence and the special providence of God. The general providence of God is just his controlling all things in the universe, and his special providence encompasses his control of the details, including the details of human history and of individual personal lives, and especially the lives of his elect. Ultimately, God governs all things in order to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And we see in several places in the Bible of the providence of God. In Genesis 45, for example, 5 to 8, Joseph, who was sold by his brothers to slavery in Egypt, now is second command in Egypt. It says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times, Joseph says, God is the one who sent me. Yes, you sold me into slavery in Egypt, but it was God who ultimately sent me here. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And we see this in Ezra 6.22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that the king aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And we see the providence of God in the New Testament, in your life and in my life, where it says in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
it was God's special providence over the life of Hudson Taylor, ordaining this sickness that brought him all the way back to England, and in that despair was born the China Inland Mission. The life of Jonah, including the lives of, the manor, of, the, of these sailors, of these mariners, was not an accident. There are no accidents in the providence of God. God allowed Jonah to go in his wayward way and brought these sailors together for a moment like this. You and I will work hard in our lives for future rewards. While we will put ourselves in a position where we are delaying pleasure or even putting ourselves in a moment, perhaps even in a season of displeasure in order that we may then reap future rewards. God orchestrates events in human history and individual lives, especially in the lives of his allies, for his glorious purposes. And he will even, at times, ordain present suffering and seasons of trials in our lives. It is pleasure to us, for sure, and it is pleasure to God as well. But he may do that at times if it means that later we will reap the fruit and the reward through present distress. And we see this most vividly in the cross of Jesus Christ. More on that. We'll return to that later. The providence of God is the highlight of this particular episode in the book of Jonah. We begin to see here the glorious lights of the providence of God break through the dark clouds of this catastrophe, and it continues to shine brighter as we then move on to the final part of this episode, which is salvation through judgment. So pick it up in verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come. Uh Uh-oh. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Do you, Jonah? The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The men are running out of time. They cast lots a way of discerning or knowing the will of God and finding an answer from God. 
and the lots fall on Jonah. And at that point, Jonah has no point but to, no, or no, no other choice but to admit and confess that he is the cause of this great catastrophe. And for the sake of their lives, he says, you must pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Just as God hurled this great wind and tossed it into the sea to cause this great storm, just as the mariners picked up the cargo and hurled it overboard to lighten the ship, to spare their lives, so then they must also pick up Jonah and hurl him into the sea. What they didn't realize until this very point is that there was something on the ship that carried a far greater weight than all the cargo put together, and that is the sin of disobedience of God's prophet. Until they hurl him into the sea, they will not be saved. But we read that the mariners are reluctant. They, they, they try to swim against the storm, and it seems like the more they swim against the storm, the fiercer the tempest becomes. And so they finally decide to do what must be done. That they must hurl him into the sea. Now, why does he have to be hurled? I mean, could not, I mean, what if, couldn't he have just willingly jumped off the boat? Jonah, if you want to jump off the boat, we won't stop you. But we won't put innocent blood on our hands by picking you up and throwing you ourselves. And I think the reason why they must make this decision and hurl him over the sea is because God wants them to take him at his word. And so they do. They cast the prophets overboard. They seem to be certain that if they do so, well then, they have just given this man a death sentence. He's not going to survive in the ocean. And the moment they do that, the sea calms. And it tells us that these mariners, they fear God, they make a sacrifice to the Lord, and they make vows. So it seems to me that through this turmoil, through this catastrophe, and even taking God at his word and seeing that God was faithful to his word and calming the seas, that these men become God-fearers and God-worshippers of the true and living God. These men have done more than just save their physical lives. They have saved their spiritual lives, it seems. And in this first episode, we see some glorious parallels to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most obvious ones, which we'll get to next week, is Jonah being swallowed up by the, belly, by the fish and being there for three days and three nights. Right? Jesus points to that as well, to his crucifixion and burial. But another similarity we see in the Gospels in Matthew 8.23 when Jesus is out with his disciples in the sea. Matthew 8.23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They made the right call. 
They went to the Lord Jesus and asked him to do something. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And it was, it's unclear what they expected Jesus to do because at that time they didn't fully believe in Jesus as the Son of God. But they called out to him, just as the mariners were calling out to a God in the heavens until they finally called out to the God of Jonah. Jonah was asleep, fleeing from the presence of God. Probably no guilt, no shame in doing so. Jesus was asleep on the boat. And he could sleep because he is God. Jesus was asleep because he is the Lord of the sea and the dry land. And he could rebuke the winds and make the seas calm down. When God determines to send his people to a particular destination, God will make sure that they get there. Right? Sometimes we want to be disobedient. Sometimes we want to want, run in the opposite direction. But God in his grace and kindness, even perhaps through turmoil, might call us to himself and get us to set a course correction. But even sometimes when we walk in the direction that we're supposed to walk in, sometimes there is calamity. Sometimes there is a trial. Sometimes there is a testing. And it's not because you're being disobedient, but in those moments when you know you are walking in step with the Lord, God means to use such trials in order to strengthen your faith and to draw you even closer to Him to cast yourself upon the hands of Jesus Christ as the one who is providentially working in your personal life. The book of Jonah, with God being its divine author, intends to teach us many things concerning the nature of God. And one of the things that we learn is about the providence of God. That there are no accidents. God allowed this to happen and orchestrated it for his own purposes, for his glorious purposes. And we see that ultimately the lives of these pagan sailors were saved and they came to give their lives to the God of Jonah. This wasn't any accident. God orchestrated this entire event and now there are these Gentiles who worship and fear God. What we also learn is the great compassion of God. Just as Jesus and the boat protected his disciples, so God protected the lives of these mariners when they took God at his word. And they believed in the God of the scriptures. We see the compassion of God here in this chapter because it has such remarkable parallels to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, Jonah says that if you want to spare your lives, then you must essentially sacrifice me. You must toss me overboard if you want to save yourselves. And their lives were spared. They learned to fear God. And we see here the providence and the compassion of God come together. 
And in a way, you could say that this might have been a test for these mariners to see if they will take God at his word. And praise the Lord, they did. And it might sound odd or peculiar or even ludicrous that God would put such men to the test, but this isn't new to the Scriptures. God tested Abraham and told him to sacrifice his one and only son. But the entire time, if you read that event clearly, and if you read the book of Hebrews, it teaches us that Abraham trusted in God the entire time that he would provide a sacrifice in place of his son. And God did. And God didn't exempt himself from such a testing or from, or from such calamity or, some, or, or, or from such anguish because it tells, we read, right, the Gospels, that God sent his own son into the world to die at the hand of sinners. And there was no one who experienced such tragedy and anguish than God the Father. God will sometimes use disaster and calamity in order to spare people from a much worse fate. John eleven forty eight, verse forty nine. This is the religious teachers talking to one another, afraid that the, the crowds will believe in Jesus. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, "You know nothing at all." Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole, not that the whole nation should perish. Similarly to Jonah, sacrifice this one man and you will save the rest. But the great thing about that is that God provided, not only for their salvation, but also provided for Jonah. For God did not allow Jonah to die, but he rescued him in his compassion and for his great purposes. And so God himself was willing to put himself under great tragedy and anguish by sending his own son into the world and bringing him to the cross in order to spare the lives of many. Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This was the will of the Lord, according to the providence of God, to send his own Son into the world to die for sinners, so that by believing in Jesus, they might be saved. Now, under the broad topic of the providence of God, there are always questions about God's will. What is God's will for my life, for your life, and I think we know at least a couple of things from the scriptures. One is that we know God's will for the unbeliever and God's will for you. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus in a personal way, or if you happen to be watching your live stream, God's will for you is to believe in his son, to give your life to Jesus Christ, to not hold on to your sins, but to cast your sins, to hurl your sins upon the Lord Jesus and allow him to absorb the penalty of your sins so you might be spared of the judgment and wrath of God. God's will for his people is not mysterious for those who believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4.2, we know what the will of the Lord is. It says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 The will of the Lord is not for you to not answer that phone. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for your life. And if you are careful to do these things, then we need never fear that we are not walking in the will of the Lord or have somehow stepped out of the providence of God. Now, there are questions regarding personal decisions. Right? I'm sure you've been there before if you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time. What is God's will for my life in this particular choice, in this direction? What is God's will for me in this particular area of my life? There, are, there aren't always clear-cut answers to that question, but two things that we ought to do when we're considering God's personal will. One, you must pray hard. Pray fervently. Pray a lot for God's direction and guidance. And pray for wisdom. The Bible says that if anybody lacks wisdom, that God gives it generously to those who ask. So pray a lot. Pray especially for wisdom. And secondly, thirdly, go to the Scriptures. Go to the Word of God. Search the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures to inform, help you inform your decisions. To gain clarity, to gain wisdom, to gain insight. Because the Lord will never tell you to do something that is contrary to His Word. That might seem obvious, but there are a lot of Christians in the world who feel like the Lord is calling them to do something and are, are flat out wrong because it contradicts what the Bible says. Go to the Scriptures. Pray for wisdom. Pray to the Lord. And if I add a fourth one is seek counsel. Ask other believers as well. So in this three-part episode, we learn that what, what God is really like, that God as a God of divine providence, providentially working out the details of the lives of these mariners and of the prophet Jonah and bringing them together. And through his authoring or orchestrating, this disaster brings physical and spiritual salvation to these sailors. And in this way, we also see the great, great compassion of God. 